Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dream. Today for Spirit in Action, we'll be speaking with an architect, but not just any kind of architect. Roy Taylor is a green architect, helping individuals and businesses have environmentally responsible buildings. Roy is one of about a thousand Quakers at the Friends General Conference gathering, being held this year at the College of St. Benedict in St. Joseph, Minnesota. Not too surprisingly, Roy, who is clerk of the organization Quaker Earth Care Witness, has been presenting on various topics at the QEW exhibit area, and he kindly consented to squeeze a visit with me into his schedule. Roy H. Taylor, the third, joins us today in person. Roy, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Mark, thank you very much for inviting me. How's your time at this gathering been? What's your impression of the campus? I've been having a wonderful time on this campus. It has been most welcoming. The facilities have been great. The food's been great. And the service has been spectacular. They've been helping us and making our audiovisual needs to taken care of. They've got a great tech staff that's been seemingly available whenever we needed them. And what's more, I've certainly noticed around the campus much greater attention to sustainability than many other campuses. You know, this Friends General Conference gathering migrates all across the United States. And so we get to see a lot of different campuses. This campus has already been taken care of We're not having to come in and make suggestions, which we often do to campuses. They already are on track. They have recycling just available everywhere. They have banned plastic bottles on campus. They have water bottle filling stations all around campus. I understood they've got more than 30 of them sprinkled around campus. So you can always find one ready just to fill your refillable jug that you're carrying around with you. And I always carry one with me. And in your work with green architecture, how common is that level of preparedness for sustainability? It's rare, this level of it. There are many people that are starting to recognize that they want to take care of these things, and they're starting to bring this into their way of thinking. But it is still something that we are a long way from adapting at this level. You know, I'm assuming that other folks associated with green architecture and folks in your area in Georgia, that you watch their examples and you learn from them, you include things in. What are some of the best examples that you've learned from, that you've been exposed to that then inform your green architecture work? Okay, there's many different portions of what will be involved in green architecture, And so we have to start looking at all of the different levels. Are we talking about something that we might do in a residential 
is not necessarily something that we would do in a business is different from what would happen in an institution like a college campus. And so the things that we would do and try and direct on a residential basis is to move toward net zero energy. And we can get into that in greater amount of detail later. In a business where many times the owner of the business is not the owner of the facility, and so they have a greater challenge, they can't add insulation to the building. They may or may not be able to even change the lighting out, but they can still do a lot of things that are involved with sustainability in how they run their business, in whether or not they make reusable things in their kitchens. You know, do they just use paper goods that every time somebody wants a glass of water or something, they're using a paper cup and it gets thrown away? Or does everybody have their own ceramic mug and they can have their coffee and rinse it out and it's ready for them for the next time? Types of cleaners they use, type of paper that they're using. Are they using a recyclable paper? So those start setting up a criteria that a business might do. When you get into institutional, when you get into, particularly if you're talking about campuses where there is a living component, then again, you've got kitchens and you've got other types of places that you're able to bring in services. And all of that is part of green architecture and how you think about these things. Because to have actual china plates and glasses and cups, I have to have a dishwasher. So I have to have built that in. And how am I heating that water that's using the dishwasher? And what type of soap am I using? So each of these things takes on their own realm of criteria by which you're going to make that building institution or business green. And you're already answering my second question. My first question really is, if I came to Canton, Georgia, and you wanted to trundle me around to find places nearby that were exemplary in terms of what you would hold as a well-thought-out green architecture, where would you take me? What buildings? I'm, I'm talking about specifics. I'm actually based in Cherokee County, which is the most northern county of the 10-county metro Atlanta area. We have two buildings that have been certified as LEED buildings that have those things, and I could take you to those in Cherokee County. But if I really wanted to take you to start showing you around, I would take you downtown. I would take you to the Emory campus. I think that they have by number, the most lead accredited buildings per a you know institution, perhaps in Georgia. The many buildings, large science buildings, where the entire building has been worked into and they've taken care of not only how are they built, but how do they serve the community, how do they serve. And I mean by that that they do things like rainwater harvesting and that water not only gets used for that building, but may water the grounds around that building and such. And so, and the parking lot that serves that building may have a porous pavement which allows the water to be absorbed on site right there and not have to run off, get caught in a catch basin and dealt with someplace else off campus. So that's one example you said. I think you mentioned two. Okay. Well, I was saying, so those are the things where I would take you. So I was, I was talking about in Canton, we are the county seat. The county commissioner's building is a LEED accredited building. Oh, really? And so that building was built uh, 
Well, the planning was about 10 years ago, so it's eight or nine years old at this point, and it is lead credited at the bronze level, and it means that they took the time out to not only design it well, there's a thing called commissioning, which means that they're looking at the engineering and how the HVAC and the heating and cooling and to be able to get that certification, they have to come back after the building has been in use for a year and make sure that the amount of air that's coming out of each of the different registers and the amount of air that's being returned is all at the correct speed, volume, temperature, so that it's not just that it was designed well and initially tested, was it built well, but that it is being maintained and continues to work well. So those are three different sort of things for the same building that all LEED certified buildings have. And this is LEED 5, I think, is the current level? I don't know if we've actually adopted 5 yet, but we're working toward that. And each time the revisions happen, things get a little bit better. Sometimes a little more difficult to comply with, but a little better in the sense of what they're looking at and how they're creating the criteria for which to judge the buildings. On the West Coast, in the Cascadia area, there's an organization that is setting up a new criteria that is looking at an even more restrictive levels as to how we can be integrating our buildings into the sites where they are being built so that they are a part of, so that they work toward neutrality on energy on water use, on rain runoff, so that when we are building our buildings, they are really becoming a part of where they are being built. So they are not impacting these communities in the way that a traditionally designed and built building does. Very conscious about the materials that can be used, very conscious that the buildings be built near transportation, near the different services that have to partake with the building. They almost all have to be built on land that has been reclaimed from previous development so that they're doing infill projects as opposed to greenfield projects, buildings built on places where no one's built buildings before. Cut down the old-growth forest to put in a new house, right? Sure. That sounds like a good idea. Great idea. So I am looking forward to being able to work with that criteria system and being able to see those buildings. And I know of a big contracting firm that is seeking one of the commissions to get one of those built in Atlanta at the moment. And so I have friends that work there, and I am hoping that they will get the commission and I'll be able to view it through their work and learn from those things about the types of materials One of the big materials that is difficult to substitute is that which we use in all portions of buildings, and that is PVC, polyvinyl chloride, which we make lots of different things out of. But the one thing that doesn't have a quick substitute for is in our wastewater plumbing. It is what we connect all of our toilets to all of our sinks, all of our things, and flush. Now, here's the problem with it. It is a great product. PVC, 
lasts a long time, doesn't degrade, is easy to work with, normal tools that you have. It's how the product is made. You can't make it without chlorine. When you make chlorine, you release mercury into the atmosphere. When you make the actual product and put it together, it creates dioxins as a byproduct. And you cannot do anything with dioxins. It is a very toxic, cancer-producing substance that has to go to hazardous waste, has to be dealt with very carefully. And the problems are that these things are made, these chemicals are put together, and the products are made in low income, often in areas of color, and it creates a justice issue. And we are now looking at many of the different justice issues as environmental justice and, or eco-justice, racial justice, and they all overlap. And this is one of those places with a building product, and it's such a good building product, you can't even get rid of it when you're done with it. <laughs> it's also light. It's easy to haul around, toss around, as, yeah. as opposed to the old metal piping. Of course, you know, we don't want lead anymore. We don't worry about that. But And copper, um, I guess copper still gets used in the heating. It does, and, and in some water supply it's still often used in certain water supply systems where you're hooking up your hot water heater and such. You may see copper pipes coming off of that. You may have your initial pipes coming in from the street that are copper. But we are moving to, there are some less hazardous plastics that are being used. There's one that goes by the name PEX, and I don't have the chemical name there for you, but that is now being used in water supply systems and is it's really good for a variety of different reasons they can put color into the actual piping itself and so it's really easy to track so we know which one's the hot water line and which one's the cold water line you're not having to sort of guess by holding on and has this water run long enough to you make can't it do that hot. with pvc it just has to be white or well whatever. i'm thinking about even with copper it's just how you work with it so it's just as a more contemporary product and it's flexible and such. And so we are looking for things that replace things like copper. Copper it needs to be used judiciously. It is a valuable metal that we are running out of. And there are places, abandoned houses that get ripped apart so that people can grab the copper out of those buildings because it gets a fair price at the recycl metal recycling because it's, it's starting to get harder and harder to get a hold of. And, of course, when you mine for copper, there's all the environmental effects that can happen from that. And, but PEX, which you, as you said, you don't remember the chemical composition of, do we have to go mining to produce that too? It's a petro. It's still, it is still a fuel-based. They're developing those plastics at this point from petroleum. And so that is an issue, but it is how it's done and what happens during the manufacture of it as well as the use as well as getting rid of it and can it be recycled and such. And so it is seen as more friendly. Well, we're considering a number of the details of how you do green architecture, how you think about a green household. Is all of this your bailiwick? I mean, I personally, maybe it is. When someone comes to you as an architect, say, I want a building, does all of this go into your consideration and discussions with them? Yes. Now, every client is different. 
And we can take this conversation deeper with some clients than we can with others because there are those people that are for financial reasons or other reasons that are outside of their consideration that don't feel that they can take that into consideration. And so we go, well, how far can we take it? But we did something just now that often happens in the conversations where we get lost in the weeds. We get lost in the details when there's really big picture stuff that we ought to be talking about first, that we ought to be talking about how and why we want to be going green and our responsibilities for doing that. So one of the things that we haven't mentioned yet is my association with Quaker Earthcare Witness. I am currently the clerk of Quaker Earthcare Witness. Quaker Earthcare Witness is a network of friends from North America who hold a concern for the environment for Earthcare. We have representatives from many different yearly meetings that make up the governing body, our steering committee of Quaker Earthcare Witness. We work to educate, to provide resources for, to in some cases even fund projects around the country and now a little bit around the globe. We are working to help other Quaker organizations like FCNL in their work and give them background information for things that they could be doing and support of actually taking the policies that they're developing and work back to monthly meetings where we can get people to call their representatives and lobby for those kinds of things on behalf of these other organizations. We are working at the level of the UN working with the Quaker UN national offices that the QNO. So we do a lot of different things toward caring for that spiritual element that sits behind earth care in such that becomes the moral conscience that is the reasons why we would try and bring these things forward to do in our physical facilities, in our houses, in our buildings, in our places of worship, and why we go forward with that kind of thing. So that's sort of some background. We need to be doing it on all levels so that it's not just me as professional green architect, but it is also from my faith community. And then I take it out into my actual community, where we do work on starting community garden and talking about the transition initiative that exists. I'm sure you have other programs that are <laughs> going to have taken care of all of those kind of details. So we'll just say that we work on those things also. Just this week earlier, I interviewed Ruiz Swannerfeld about transition and people of faith in the transition movement. Right. So we do our part to push that forward. And Rua was Quaker Earthcare Witnesses General Secretary for 17 years or something. So she has a great connection with us there. Who's bigger, a general secretary or a clerk? Oh, very different. One's an employee and is running the administrativeness. A clerk in secular terms is sort of a little bit more like president, except because it's Quakers, it's kind of the chief cat herder. <laughs> it's kind of like the difference between those people who think of the Ten Commandments and the people who think of the Ten Suggestions. A clerk has to deal with the Ten Suggestions because those cats go anywhere they want to. A little bit. 
but it is an immense responsibility and one that I treat very seriously. I have been doing it for two and a half years now, and I'm just getting good at it. And I think the website for that is QuakerEarthCare.org? Yes, and would recommend people taking a look, seeing the work that we do. And there is a place on that website that you could sign up for and get a free copy of our bi-monthly, every other month, bi-monthly publication called Befriending Creation. And we have lots of information in there about work that we are doing, but also work that's being done around the world and how we can all benefit from that as a resource. I really like the newsletter that you put out. It has the proper mix, in my opinion, of both practical, concrete type stuff and the values, the important moral imperative that we have. It it balances that. I mean, you really probably don't need to convince me that architecture, green architecture is important or that we need to save the planet, we need to live environmentally friendly lives. You don't have to convince me of that. But on the other hand, there are still points of resistance. I read the book Ishmael somewhere late in the 1990s. Those who haven't read it, it's great to think of a telepathic gorilla who is helping teach people Socratically how to save the world. It's a very interesting concept. I, sh- I shouldn't have given away the one of the plot devices, but one of the things, we were studying that at Eau Claire Friends meeting I'm part of. We were studying that which was very powerful, but I came to the question, says, okay, I know this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, this way is better than this way, but my environmental footprint as an American, where we have a lot of embodied energy in our environment, uh, you know, we have plumbing for our cities and we have city streets that are paved and there's any number of things that add to our footprint, even if our house is simple, that if I knew that that was unsustainable for the globe, which I think projected across all the people in the globe, it is, even the simplest of us, would I change my life? And that was a hard question to face. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's I do. And not only is there that book, there is actually, there's a follow-up book. Story of B and My Ishmael, both. So once you get through one, your book club may take on the next, or if it, the whole meeting is reading it, perhaps. So we have to look at all of these things as systems. We are in systems, and we are creating systems, and we are working at things. And these systems are very large, and to save the planet, we can't get lost and think that just because we have found one little piece of it that that is going to be the solution for us. We've got LED lighting, right? Therefore, it's solved. (laughs) There, it's solved. Oh, we recycled. Done. So light bulbs are not going to do it. Getting everybody to recycle isn't going to do it. There are fundamental changes to the systems that we are having to be looking at. We are going to be having to look at how we use everything. The premise by some is that we need to change capitalism We need to get rid of it entirely, and we need to move to a different economic system. That may be the solution. I think that there are benefits that if we could learn how to regulate and be observant to how we are using capitalism and not have capitalism use us, we may be able to work within that system. 
because of those kinds of choices that are out there, and there are thousands of choices, and we make hundreds of those every day. I created a nonprofit educational organization called Choosing Green because all of these things come down to choice of how we're going to use something, and it is not just our buildings and what materials we're using to build our buildings, but what the size of our building is, where we are building that building, what are we preparing to eat, and how are we growing the food, and how are we delivering that food to us? What are we choosing to wear? Where was that article of clothing made? Who suffered for the sweat so that I could put on this tidy shirt today? All of these are issues. They're all choices. And we need to change our consciousness into our thinking and realize that we have choices. These are things that we can make a difference by changing the way we think, changing the way we behave. We can alter things by the choices that we choose to buy is one of the things, or the fact that we've chosen not to buy in the sense of reducing our consumption. And so these are all choices. So that's why we have the organization Choosing Green. Again, it's an educational thing. We put up and go to different conferences, get videos of great number of speakers, and talk about the different things that are available there. But it's mostly a platform with which we can launch to be able to have a discussion like we're having today. I'm not much of an advocate for the devil, but I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate because I've had people return questions to me. I want to see what your answers are, Roy. And by the way, folks, we are speaking with Roy H. Taylor III. Roy Taylor is all it says on his name tag that I see here at the Friends General Conference gathering. But his website for his business, rt3architects.com. And you also heard him mention Choosing Green, choosinggreen.com. Both of those links you'll find on Northern Spirit Radio website. And this is Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org, where we have 11 years of our programs for free listening and download right from our website. We've got links to our guests, so those two links will be on there, and more information about Roy and Quaker Earth Care Witness and other organizations. You'll also find a place to post comments. We love two-way communication. When you visit the website, please post a comment. Let us know what you're thinking. There's also a place for donations. That is how this full-time work is supported. It's not by government. It's not by grants. It's not by commerce. It's because you choose to support it. But even more important, I would say, is to support your local community radio station. They bring you a slice of news and of music that you get nowhere else. And it's so important to protect our diverse sources of information. It's also true ecologically to have diverse species. And I think community radio helps provide that kind of diversity that makes radio vibrant, that makes news vibrant, makes music vibrant. So please support your local community radio station. Roy Taylor here. We're at the Friends General Conference gathering. We're at the College of St. Benedict, which is in St. Joseph, Minnesota. It's kind of central Minnesota. We're speaking with Roy. He's part of the Quaker Earth Care Witness organization. He's their clerk, and they have a wonderful display here. If you were wandering through, you'd be learning lots from their display. I'm trying to learn more from him because he's involved with green architecture. He's a green architect, and he is the founder of Choosing Green. So I was going to be a devil's advocate, or pretend I am at least. 
I have siblings, in fact, and very dear friends who say, it's not a big deal. We're all bent out of shape about this. This pollutes the air. This pollutes the water. And we've been through this before. London in the 1200s had unbreathable air because they were burning coal or charcoal or that kind of thing right in the city. And it was horrible. Our air quality is much better than theirs. We tend to think whatever crisis we're looking at right now makes it really worse. So what's the big deal? Why can't we just, why isn't it going to just be fine in 10 years or 20 years when we have the latest technology that's going to solve the problem? Well, that would be wonderful if there was going to be such a technology that was going to save us. But it would have to be a technology that would change how we lived. Because currently, we are using our fossil fuels in such a way as to continue to increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So that we are now over 400 parts per million. And it is creating a huge change in our climate and in our oceans. In our climate, we have raised the temperature one degree in a relatively short period of time. We have scientists that have told us that if we raise the temperature two degrees, we will be in a great deal of problems with the way our planet self-regulates itself in being able to cast off heat that we are getting in from the sun and be able to shed that heat, which we used to be able to do when we were below 300 parts per million. But we had a safety measure that we could get up to about 350 and we would still be okay because it would not take the temperature of the earth that far. We have been continuing to put CO2 into the atmosphere, and CO2 has a 100-year cycle, which means it does not leave the atmosphere. And so what we have been putting into the atmosphere in most recent past is still building to be able to raise that temperature, and it is estimated that the lag time for this amount of CO2 that's been added, we will get another half degree out of that. So we are now already have spent that amount of carbon into the atmosphere as we use our cars, as we power our buildings with the coal and natural gas, as we're using these different chemical products products that fertilize our cornfields and how we go about what we're creating for our feed stocks and such, we are at one and a half of the two degrees. If we hit the two degrees, we could actually start a negative feedback loop that would be out of control so that we would be warming the areas of the permafrost that is across all of the northern hemisphere whether it be Siberia in Russia or whether it be through Alaska and northern Canada, that has a huge amount of methane in it. And methane traps heat better than CO2, about 30 times better. It has a much shorter life than carbon does, but its equivalency, and when it's released quickly, will have profound effects. And so that's one of the negative feedback loops. As we melt the Arctic ice and expose the ocean, the ice has been reflective as a white surface. And as soon as we have melted it, we have a dark surface that will absorb the heat. And so our Arctic ocean then becomes warmer much more quickly. 
If we melt the glaciers on Greenland and get that temperature back into the ocean, we could disrupt the Gulf Stream as it comes up, curves around, and warms northern Europe. If that stream were to be disruptive, that would cause perhaps a profound cooling of northern Europe, maybe even triggering an ice age. At the same time that the planet's warming up. At the same time the planet's warming up. So we talk about climate change, but we're really talking about climate chaos. Everything is changing to a point where we don't have the ability to know what's coming. So there's a predictability. Those areas that have been either dry or wet are becoming much more wet or much more dry. As we warm the atmosphere, we're able to hold much more moisture in the atmosphere. It's just a physics thing. Basic science. You learned in high school about temperature and moisture and how these things work. But it means that when we have a storm, when things happen, they happen harder. They happen more violently. They happen in ways that we have not seen. And in predictability, we are ending up with multiple 500-year storms or 1,000-year storms. There is a great deal of problems with this as a reaction to our warming up the atmosphere. We end up with things like the devastation of West Virginia several weeks ago, where the floods just, it had never flooded like that in recorded history losing lives, being able to do it. And that is just one little localized event. We're experiencing huge floods in China as we speak. I don't know what the death number is. The last time I checked, it was 127, just in the last couple of days. We have lots of these things. They're happening. They're happening repeatedly. We have the Hurricane Sandys as the, the major events, or we have the Hurricane Katrina as a major event, and we we try and pin those as the poster childs of some of these things happening because of climate change. But it's really happening all the time in various parts of the world. But in this country, we're watching communities having to be totally relocated, whether it be off of, the, you know, an island off of the coast of Louisiana as part of the Gulf because the water levels have risen as well as coastal Alaska, where there are a host of communities there that have lost their buffer between them and the ocean. They are going to have to be moved also. Terrible decisions. These are places that have all of their infrastructure in place. You had started talking about that before, about, you know, we have sewer systems and plumbing systems, and up there they actually even have heating systems that are built right into the ground structure, and you can't just pick those up and move. And so we are talking billions of dollars in relocation, and we are talking about millions of lives as the oceans rise and that the greatest amount of population that we have on this earth are all in cities that are on the coast, whether it be on this country from Miami to New York or the millions of people in places like Bangladesh. There are places of people with no means with which to make these moves. And so we look at the immigrant and migration and immigration 
policies that we're talking about and look at the refugees that are flowing out of someplace like Syria. And we don't talk about the fact that the Syrian war is actually a climate change war. It was the fact that they were going through five years of drought, which was taking people from the rural areas and bringing them into the cities. And then when they were in the cities and realized that they weren't being treated in a responsible manner, that they took to a protest in the streets and the resistance to the protest in the streets by the government is what started the civil war, which is what has ruined that country. And hence, we put five million people on the move. We are going to be having hundreds of millions of people on the move as climate refugees. There's a lot deeper. We could go into our discussions about the values involved in all of this. And some of this will be out on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website as bonus excerpts because there's just too much to talk about here in 55-minute broadcast. I do want to go into some of the specifics, though. One of them is dishwashers. My wife thinks we should be washing our dishes in the dishwasher. The new dishwashers are better. You, you don't have to rinse stuff ahead of time. There's just the two of us in the house, so there's the question of how long you let your dishes set and all that kind of thing. I personally believe in the healing properties of washing dishes. The process of doing it is a good thing. Do you come out one way or another, Roy, in terms of whether dishwasher versus hand washing is better or not? I think that in an individual household of two, that there is a limited difference in the two. Your wife is correct on one level that it probably uses less water if you're not rinsing your dishes much, if you are letting that dishwasher be full when you go to wash it and you're not just running it every day because that's the amount of dishes we use today, so we're going to run it tonight anyway. There is a level of, I'm getting this done. I'm going through a process. We made food. We ate food. Now we're cleaning up from food and washing and putting things away. There is value in that that we are dealing with these things that are not, didn't use the hot water heater that fed the mechanics and the electricity that's being run by the machine. So there's trade-offs on all of those sides. But if we were looking, and this is where we again, we start talking about systems. Where are those different areas that we're trying to, am I trying to save electricity? Am I trying to use less of this? Can I use a dish pan that I'm holding water in that I can wash several things and then only rinse when I've, after I've scrubbed all of the dishes? And so there's methods by which you can change your patterns so that you can use less water while you're washing your dishes as a opposed to how some people do it, where they just turn the water on and they're just scrubbing and it's running and you're sticking it under and you're grabbing the next. Just as in showering, you can get yourself all wet, you can turn the water off, you can lather up, and you can rinse off. And in that four-minute shower, instead of a 20-minute shower, you have cleaned yourself and you are ready for the day. Is it as relaxing to do it that way? We use that long shower for a variety of reasons, but not for efficiency. So whether it's washing dishes or washing ourselves, it's the same sort of thing. And I don't think anybody's come up with sort of a, the body washer in the sense of uh, dishwasher type thing. There are many different ways that we can look at these details. Do you have any other details that we could talk about? Sure. And there's one that's very important when you try and value housing 
one of the important criteria is location, location, location. You live in Georgia, I live in Wisconsin. There's a slight environmental difference between those two. And there's also environmental differences in terms of are you by a body of water, are you up on a mountain, etc. It's kind of one of the interesting factors a lot of people ignored is that the extreme south of this country, including Florida, were populated less quickly than, say, Illinois or even Wisconsin until air conditioning came along. I know a good number of people who've moved from Wisconsin to Florida or such like because they have air conditioning and they say, you know, the, the horrible climate in Wisconsin when it gets down to 20 below sometimes in the winter. Which is more damaging to the environment? Which is, which do we, should we prioritize? Air conditioning versus heating is, I guess, my question. Which is more problematic for our environment, trying to keep something warm that's normally a little bit colder than what we want or cooling down something that's hotter? Air conditioning does more than cooling. Air conditioning also dries. And so you're keeping a humidity situation. So if we're talking about not just north-south, we're also talking about the conditions with with the thing is. Because if I moved south and went to Phoenix, I'd be in dry heat, not southeast, where I'm in moist heat. And how we work with the different types of structures that are available to us vary in those different climates. And so we have four basically different climates we've got. We've got warm, dry, warm, wet, cold, dry, and cold, wet. So where you are, it's actually I'm not sure. I know that west of where you are would be cold, dry. Eau Claire, Wisconsin is where I live, so that's 75 miles east of the Twin Cities. So, again, I don't know what the moisture levels of your air are over the course of the year. I suspect that they're drier than mine, but I don't know that because there's certain pockets within certain river areas. And, you know, you've got the Great Lakes up here that change lots of different things and affect your weather. But as soon as you get west of the Great Lakes, you end up in a dry, cold area, certainly all of the upper plains, until you get to the other side of the Rockies, and then you get into the areas of more cold, wet in Washington, Oregon. Each of these different areas takes different types of heating and cooling systems, or HVAC, has to be designed around how we get rid of that moisture, how do we deal with it, how do we get be comfortable within it as we're you know a living thing. So I don't have a direct answer for you that says, oh, heating is so much easier than cooling. Some of that has to do with behavior. Do we dress lightly when it's warm out? And do we throw an extra sweater on when it's cold out? Which changes how we're using those HVAC systems. And so a lot of that has to do with our behavior as well as the systems themselves. Not a clear answer. Eh, not so satisfying. It's not a simple answer is what it comes down to, which I accept. There is a, a factor. Or there's a friend of mine, Sam Thayer Price, said there's a lot of people who are into environment and they want to put on solar panels. I, 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 this is loose paraphrase. Put on solar panels. They'll you know get rid of the lead in their pipes. They'll do any number of things which are good. But he says, if we're going to really be serious about this, we have to address question one. And he says that the green architecture literature almost never addresses this one. 
I heard you mention it earlier in one of your lists, and that is the square footage of the building, the residence you live in, is the best predictor of your environmental impact. So if you have a 3,000-square-foot house versus a 1,500-square-foot house versus 750-square-foot house, you're probably going to do quadruple or double whatever your environmental impact that you'd have from your 750-square-foot house. Is he right? Yes, but he is also right about, and right here at this conference, I gave an hour-plus lecture on six things that you should do before you put on solar panels because solar panels are great. They are a wonderful invention. They have come down in price. We are getting a lot more of them put up, and all of that is adding to the solution. But the two-minute version is you need to get your house so it is not leaky. Use lots of caulk. You need to insulate your house. Create a harder pathway for heat loss or cooling loss, winter, summer, so that the inside of that house stays on the inside and just doesn't leak into the atmosphere. You want to change your behavior, which I've already mentioned, which has to do with when you're turning lights on, when you're turning them off, how you're using your house as a tool for living. So that, and this is just amazing to me, that behavior is number three on this list that we could change so much. And they even have proven this on college campuses just by making people conscious, often done through competitions between dorms as to how much electricity they or power that they use in the thing, and have found just by behavior can change 13% of the costs of energy for those buildings by just making people conscious of turning the lights off when they're not needed and keeping the doors closed or opening them. If they, you know, if you're opening your windows because you need a little ventilation, you wanted it warmer in your room, it was warmer outside, you wanted it cooler, you know, you just changed by opening up a window instead of turning up the thermostat or turning down a thermostat. You didn't have to do. Then we move into closing things up even better, which is storm windows and storm doors. The next, and each of these things are a cost per benefit ratio. So I'm talking about the least amount of cost to the best benefit, making it tight, making sure you have all the weather stripping and caulking that you possibly have, costs very little and can make a real impact on a house. Now, appliances. They've made great headways in the Energy Star appliances, the new refrigerators that even from 12, 15 years ago, substantially less electricity being able to be used in them. Our televisions, we have these massive screen televisions. Televisions used to be huge energy hogs. They still use a fair amount, but way less than the photon tubes that we were using five years ago, six years ago. <laughs> it's just so you had mentioned earlier in this interview about technology saving things, and there are some things that technology is going to be doing. The next one down on the list of six is our HVAC systems, our major systems within our houses, and they are making some great strides there. Once we have done all of those things, once we have put in efficient systems, that we've changed the light bulbs, that we've put in the weather stripping, that we've added the insulation, that we've gotten used to knowing when to turn off the lights that we're not using and such, then we put on solar panels. Why did we do all of that other stuff first? 
because now I have reduced the amount of electricity that I actually needed in the house and I can put up half the size system and get the same benefit. So I've paid for all of the other work because solar panel systems are expensive and we don't want to spend a lot doing them. And so it makes them work. They're not having to work as hard. And so you can be able to take the advantage of all of these things, then put up solar panels. Solar panels are great because they are able to be that thing with which you show your neighbors. I have done it now. I've put these big shiny things on my roof and everyone can see them. And when the power to the neighborhood goes down, I still can have my power. <laughs> well, unfortunately, uh, right at the moment, <laughs> right at the moment, if you are a grid-tied system, no, you can't because they aren't set up yet. We're working on what it's going to take to be able to go out in the garage and flip the switch that will disconnect your entire house from the outside world, and then you flip the other switch, which puts the electricity back into your system. Because right now, if you were generating electricity and nobody else was, and the electrician's coming to repair the downed wire because the storm took it out, he's going to get zapped because he thinks the electricity's turned off, but it's coming off your roof back at him. So we have to look at these different safety issues, and I believe that they're very doable, but we haven't done that as a typical thing. Right now, if you're a grid-tied system, everybody else loses power, you lose power too. There's so much more we could go into, Roy. I want folks to be aware of Roy Taylor III, and therefore the website rt3architects.com and also the nonprofit that he's working with is called Choosing Green website choosinggreen.com there's a few more questions i want to ask you specifically roy number 1 is is it hard to find someone with your knowledge as a green architect is this kind of still rarefied within the profession or are they a dime a dozen they're not a dime a dozen but there are increasing people's knowledge of these different things is increasing all the time. Now, not everyone that calls themselves a green architect has made it their life thing. There are some that are just taking on the mantle of as part of their marketing. And so I can't speak to having the level that I, of experience and knowledge that I have. But they are out there, and you can find them in your area. They are becoming LEED accredited, and just to become a LEED accredited means that you have a base level of knowledge of how these things go together and what needs to be done to make a better building for you. The other question I had, there's people listening, and they say, this Roy Taylor, he sounds like he knows what he's doing. Maybe I should be consulting him as my architect as opposed to theirs. Is the deciding factor whether they live within an easy driving radius of you? For architecture, where we want to be really looking at and consulting with the clients directly and overseeing the construction, yes, proximity does help. I have a small firm, and so we deal mostly in the Atlanta area, but I have extended different places. You know, I have clients down in the Savannah area. In fact, I've just been scheduling a meeting to get down there as soon as I get back. We're under construction on a project down there. So I would suggest, and this is really as much of anything as to another philosophy that I have, which has to do with seeking to do things on a local basis. 
So I would have you take a little time and see how close you could find somebody with good professional knowledge of these things close to you. Who is in your local market? We need to be doing all things local. That is the way that we're really going to be able to build up and have communities that are starting to take care of themselves. If people are looking for local architects, if they're not there now, someone may see that there's a need for one and they may move to that area to fulfill that niche that is out there that people will need. And I want to encourage people to shop local. I want the people to be thinking about local food production. I want people to be thinking about how they can be working within their communities to create a resilient community that is much more self-sufficient than we have been talking about in the recent past. One last question, Roy. RT3 Architects is one option, but they could also be contacting choosinggreen.com. What issues are going to lead them in one direction versus the other? For the most part, I would probably, if they're looking to interface with me, they should go to the RT3 and find the contact information there and be directly coming to me. And then if there's something that's on the other site, I will direct them there or I will direct them to other places that they could get the information they needed, such as the QuakerEarthCare.org. There's so much that we have to change in this world to make it sustainable, to make it resilient, as the transition movement speaks about. I'm glad that you're doing your very important part, not only by serving as clerk for Quaker Earth Care Witness, but by doing it as your profession, mixing the calling of your heart with the work of your hands. It's wonderful to see that, and it's wonderful you chose to join me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production help with today's program, and we'll see you again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.